Okay, one second, two second, flashing lights. My little uh, UV meters are working. Okay. Welcome to episode 90 of the False Neutral Podcast for June of 2019. And I don't know if you guys realize it, but this is the 18th monthly episode. We've been at this for a year and a half, and we have all three been on every episode <laughs> since we went to the once a month format. So yeah, the, uh, the whole objective of doing this once a month was so that we could all make it, and we have, so... Yeah. Yay for us. Yeah, I don't I what we were doing it weekly before, right? We did it uh, weekly. Bi-weekly. No, we did it weekly. We did we did weekly. For, wow. For, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think the first like year or two and then it got really irregular there. That was there. difficult. Yeah. Really difficult. And we the we did take like December off. I remember we did that just took a break over Christmas, so Yeah. Or I should say the holidays. Yeah. Because everybody celebrates multiple holidays. That's true. Let's, as we always do, start with a workshop update. Uh, I don't really have one. Everything's pretty much right where it was last time we talked. Uh, I did do one thing, not in my workshop, but I bought some parts. The CL125 has the dinky, tiny little front brake, which is the same one as like the S90 and the CT90. It's just this tiny little thing. In fact, when I first got it inspected, the guy who inspected it goes, does this not have a front brake on it? I'm like, yeah, it does. Look, it's a drum. And he's like, but I was like, that's the tiniest little yeah. drum. So I thought, oh, I want to put a disc brake on it. For like two years, the CB125 had a mechanical front disc and Honda. Oh, wow. Honda tried that for a couple of years and it just basically had a, a pivoting cam with a ramp on it that was connected to a cable. So you pulled the cable, the cam pivoted, the little ramp twisted and pushed the plate out. And it, it was pretty jinky. There was one version for the 125 and there was a slightly different larger version on the CB200 in the mid seventies. Nobody liked them. And like after two years at all, they went away. Yeah. Well, I went ahead and got a CB125 wheel, which the guy assured me was, oh, good to go. And I got it and looked at it. And underneath the bead where the bead was folded over, it had corroded so bad that the bead had like lifted and bubbled up. I'm like, there's no way you could safely put a tire on this. He's like, I just took it off my bike. So I sent him pictures of it. And he's like, wow, I'm really glad I replaced that. I didn't even notice that. So... He gave me a big discount. I ended up getting it for 30 bucks. So yeah. I'm going to need to put a, uh, a new rim on it, but I have a hub that would work with the brake disc. I also got, uh, CB125 lower fork legs that have the, the Boston mounted to. And I was like, yeah, this is great. And I wanted to find a little hydraulic brake caliper that would work on that. And I found the rear brake for a Suzuki Vinton 500 ATV looked like it would work perfectly. So I got it. It was a knockoff, but it was brand new. And I was like, oh, this will work. And I put it on the, you know, kind of sized it up and I slid the caliper onto my disc and it hits the spokes. Oh, no. I was like, oh, so I'm like, okay, do I either get like some ridiculously huge, like 11 inch rotor for this like little 125 that's going to be as large <laughs> as my my wheel so that I can mount it far enough out that I have clearance or do I just get the mechanical Honda disc brake or do I not worry about it and stick with the little drum and say it is what it is so at this point I don't know but I I bought off some parts cheap and played around with it and still yeah. kind of scratched my head on how I could get a nicer front brake yeah I've had to deal with some house projects that took up all my time. So uh, I'll turn it over. Well, to that's you. no fun. It wasn't bad. So one of the things I did was I did 
finally get a ventilation fan in my workshop area so that things like welding fumes, paint fumes, solvents, acetone stuff don't immediately all waft upstairs into the bedroom and kitchen <laughs> area. So I'm sure your wife appre- appreciates that. Yes, very much so. Cause she has a bionic nose. Yeah. It's like she's a dog. Parts per billion. She's like, what does that smell? Things like acetone just give me an instantaneous headache. Yeah. Yeah. So acetone's one of the words. I don't even mind gasoline. Acetone, for some reason, just is nasty. Yeah, very. I try to use mineral spirits whenever I can, rather than acetone to, like, clean things. And But sometimes you, you have to use it. That's Yeah. It does magic. Yeah. Uh, Garrett, what have you been up to? Well, speaking of acetone, I've been using a lot of it lately because I've been doing a bunch of painting. Um, I haven't made as much progress in the last month as I did probably the month prior to that. Um, I really kind of expected this motorcycle to be about wrapped up by the time we would talk, but it is um, no closer to being wrapped up. In fact, I probably made it even a bigger project over the last month than it needs to be uh, the Kenny Roberts bike. That is Um, the last time we spoke, I think that I had just got the engine completed and kind of dismantled some things to clean it. And I was going to put it back together, but then the engine looked so good and the chassis, the paint was, you know, pretty rough and uh, faded. So um, I ended up getting uh, automotive single stage, black paint and took a lot of time masking off the frame because I didn't want to take everything apart to paint or powder coat the frame. I just wanted it to look better than it did. So I spent a bunch of time masking a bunch of things off and painting the frame and it turned out really good. And then I figured I needed to make the body work and tank look better. So I just wet sanded it out and sprayed a clear coat over it all. And so now it's shiny and um, I polished out the front fork tubes and polished the um, foot peg mounts. There's like big <clears throat> aluminum foot peg mounts. Um, what were you using for uh, for polishing on that? Just out of curiosity. Uh, just a six inch buffing pad on a grinder, like a bench grinder thing. What kind mm-hmm. of abrasive? I, um, it's like a medium aluminum polishing compound stick. Like okay. The hard, stick yeah um and i would say it probably looks like a production polished job i didn't want it to look too shiny in fact in the in the picture that i sent you guys it probably looks shinier than it does in person i didn't want it to look too shiny i just wanted it to look like it might have from the factory um so yeah i just gave it a good polishing up and same with the the um on the foot peg brackets, like the front part of it's polished. And then the backside, I just kind of sprayed silver over it all. So um, at any rate, I need to finish painting the swing arm. And then once I finish painting the swing arm, then I can finally put it all together. <laughs> and unless I find out some other things that I want to go overboard on. So we'll see. <laughs> I thought the video you posted on Facebook of milling off the, the oh yeah, Y P V S logo yep. on the side of the cylinders was pretty cool. Yeah, that um, so I I had my friend machine that head and he did a great job, but then I, I so I, I install CC the combustion chambers so I know exactly what the compression is going to be because. Yeah, especially when you're machining a head, you really need to know what the combustion chamber size is when you're done. But also, you need that all has to be in the context of the piston crown and and other things. So, really, the best way to know your compression ratio for sure is to what they call install CC it, um, and you use kind of like a um, a chemistry measurement device that you fill up with a colored liquid, and then you seal the piston. Uh, to the bore with some grease at top dead center, you can install the head on it and then fill the combustion chamber up with a liquid and you use your measurement device so you know exactly how much liquid goes into the 
combustion chamber. So I did that, and it turns out my compression ratio was going to be 13 and a half to one. <laughs> Way too high. Yeah. So um, needed to fix that. And uh, I, I didn't want... It, it's diff- When you're machining a head like that, it, it's really difficult to know exactly how much you need to take off. You basically just have to take some off install cc it take more until you sneak up on the compression ratio that you want to run um and and i didn't want to have my friend have to dicker with that and his lathe uh because it's you know in a different side of the city from where i'm at so um that head wouldn't fit in my lathe but only just barely so i ended up um grinding away a little bit of the metal on my lathe so I could swing that head in it. And so I ended up doing that and, and uh took some time to get my compression ratio down where it needed to be. Um and so once all that was done then yeah I milled the uh YPVS uh you know off the side of it just so it looked like the factory. But machining that head was kind of a process because uh the compression ratio ended up being way too high on the first go around. So so what did you end up with? For- uh, it's about 11, just under 11 to 1 now. So It's still pretty good for a two-stroke. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you, oftentimes two-strokes, the compression ratio that they advertise um, starts above the port openings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fine, but it doesn't really give you an accurate picture of your compression ratio because... If you raise your exhaust port timing, your well, yeah, your that, compression that. ratio in theory would go down, but it doesn't. You just raise your exhaust port timing. When the engine is running, the uh, the way the exhaust works in the expansion chamber effectively closes those ports. So you can calculate your compression ratio just like you would a four-stroke. Um, in fact, when you're running a fuel like race gas or methanol, you would you want your compression ratio to be just the same as it would on a four stroke. So like mm-hmm. if you're running in methanol, you would want it at 14 or 15 to one, yep. whether it's a two stroke or four stroke, it doesn't matter that fuel right, still burns at 14 to 15 to one best. Right. If, so. if you've got your porting and charging, right, it's no different than a supercharged or turbocharged four stroke engine. When the right. valve opens, regardless of whether it's in the piston skirt or the head, you, you have positive, pressure forcing a charge in there yeah so it really yeah that port is open but that doesn't mean that you're losing compression at that point because you're actually gaining a positive charge into the cylinder at that point yeah and so that's one of the issues when people oftentimes with two strokes people that are inexperienced use a cranking compression number to know their relative like static compression ratio but, and that's the thing, like we just talked about, if you change your port timing, then, you know, if you raise your port timing, for instance, then your compression, w- like your cranking compression would go down, uh, you know, so then you end up making your combustion chamber smaller to compensate for that. But then you could end up being at like 15 to 1 compression to get your cranking number up to you know 140 or 50 or 60 or why why i got holes in my piston yeah so (laughs) um static compression ignoring the port heights uh is really the most accurate way to to figure it out so but yeah so i got my compression ratio where i wanted it i'll run um premium gas in it and and it'll like that number just fine so are you still, I forgot, are you keeping that on injection or are you going premix only? No, this one's going to be injection. Okay, cool. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I want to be able it's to. Way easier. <laughs> yeah, I want to be able to actually like write it places yeah. and fill up and not have to worry about premixing. So my yeah. other RZ uh, with the 10 mil motor that I'm building, that'll be a premix, uh, premix only kind of a thing. So. But yeah, so that's where the RZ is at. Uh, you know, it's getting there. I I, I don't know if I'm going to make it with the bike to Radwood next month. If I do, it's going to be like a photo finish. <laughs> I think Radwood is like July 20th. So that gives me just over a month to finish it, which is doable. I mean, the engine's done. I just really need to put it together. But 
I've got so many things going on right now. I just don't know if it's going to be in my priorities to get it completed. So we'll see. I'm going to Radwood either way, but I would just really like to take the bike. That would be the perfect two-wheel Radwood. I know, right? Yeah. A Kenny for- Roberts 85 RZ350. I mean, that is like perfect for Radwood. For, for that one, though, do you have to pre-register? I did, yeah. Did, oh, you did pre-register? Yeah, okay, cool. yeah, I already I registered the bike. So um, there's space for it if I can get it done. And That's... I'm sure Bradley will just be irritated at me if it doesn't show up after I pre-registered it. He's going to be there. Uh, Brad Barnell, Brennell yeah. from Camden Tub. So, yeah, Form- I talked form- to him. Formerly and, of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah formerly of. I talked to him, asked him if he was going to be there, and he said, yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing him in person for the first time. But, yeah. Anyways. What have you been doing in your workshop, Eric? We saw your well, video the other day. Yeah. I uh, I went out and was going to play with it a little bit and, you know, had had a, had a little bit and like all right let's see what if everything is good to go here and uh do i so i can order tires and just get it ready to go and put insurance on it so i can ride it well i gotta get plates too but i gotta get insurance before i get plates whatever um so i started up and i was like eh, okay and then once it was warmed up and i'm like i was gonna just run it up and down the street a couple times again and then as soon as you gave it and i shot the video of this um as soon as you started giving it throttle once it was warm it would just like it would just cough immediately. And I mean, you could even just try to really, really sneak up on the throttle and it would still just like cough and quit immediately. And so I'm like, ah, oh, balls. <laughs> so I went back and I, um, pulled the carb off and I just checked and I didn't, uh, I think the, the idle mixture screws were, uh, a little off and changed a couple of things and like, okay, well, it started running a little bit better. And I'm like, all right, well, I didn't really, really time the motor when we put the electronic ignition in. So then I went and I went and did that. I'm like, okay, well, that's working. And then I realized that, oh, yeah, my tack's not working right. I'm like, what the hell? Then I realized, oh, this is a mechanically driven tack. So it does, the connection in the back didn't look real firm, right? So I like unscrewed it and put it back in. Nope. That was, well, it was screwed in as far as it could go and the tack still doesn't want to work. So I'm guessing like the gear or something in there is worn or, brittle you know cracked and brittle whatever anyways that was a minor thing um so then um i pulled the carbs off again and just like took them a little bit apart with a buddy of mine and um there was some gunk in there and i'm thinking that the coating this the red coat i think is what it was called that i used for the tank doesn't doesn't like the ethanol content of gasoline yeah um because I'm find I found a little gunk in the carbs already, yeah, and I'm just like ah, oh, crap. So went through, cleaned them up a little bit. Just it wasn't bad. It was just stuff you could get with either a little pick or a, or your nail and some Q-tips and stuff like that, and got it cleaned up. And it was you know it would it would start okay. It would it would kind of run okay, especially when cold. But um, anyway, so that it got to the point like all right, well I don't know if it was one of you guys who said it, or I was looking for something on online and, um, they said, well, when's the, you know, check your, check your valve clearances. Mm-hmm. So, um, I've started to do that. Um, and, and the video that I watched to check it was on an XS 650. I'm like, okay, well, you know, same thing essentially, except that the cover that you pull to check the rockers and the, in your valve lash on an XX, XS 650 is way larger than the 400. So I actually had to go out today and get some um, different feeler gauges that had the little L bend in them mm, yeah. so I could actually get the gauge. Because I was like, I was taking them like, ah, it's a, just trying to bend it in there and, yeah. and get it to flex enough to get underneath there. But the first one I checked, um, so the, the way they sh- this guy showed it is you go to like, it completely, cl- I don't know, there was a complete open or completely closed. I got the video marked. Whatever it is, and then you just measure it, and what you want to see is like two thou on your your intakes and four thou on your exhaust, right. based on the way he is doing this. And some Yamaha factory technician, like factory factory Yamaha technician, told him how to do this. So, uh, and I was at seven thou on my exhaust. So yeah. I don't I don't think that that's really the issue, but I'm not sure. So I'm gonna fix that. That eliminates that. The last thing though is that. The right cylinder still at times is, sounds like it's not 
firing clean all the time. So the last thing I got to do is I got to get a, a leak down tester or borrow a leak down tester and just see if something's going on in, in that right cylinder. Cause I think have, that's the problem one. Have you put new plugs in it? Yeah. They're brand new plugs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we pulled them and they looked and they, they look great. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That, that valve clearance, the engine's not really going to care. I've seen them that. way off and you wouldn't know it from riding it. You know, it's not like, yeah, my ex- you can you can hear something rattling in there like it's a little too loose, but or like there's a too little too much clearance in one of them, I think. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. So that's I mean, it's a pretty easy thing to get to. I think I got for the for the exhaust. You don't. I mean, you just pull that cover off right there. It's easy to do for the intakes. I think I got to pull the tank off, which is obviously 30 second job. So yeah. and at seven thousand, I, I might even be tempted to leave that because your valve clearance is going to is going to tighten over time because your valves stretch. Mm. So what, what is a seven thousands clearance now? And you know, a few thousand miles might end up being a five thousands clearance as that valve stretches. So, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, if, if you don't want to do a bunch of work, uh, it would be my recommendation to not really worry about that clearance. Um, so, but it's up to you if you want them perfect, like I usually do then adjust them. But I, yeah, also, this is Something not a is super, an XS400 is not a super high strung engine. No, I mean, right. those things will put up with well, a whole yeah. lot of that. Know. And this motorcycle has how many miles on it? A thousand. Yeah. So like, you know, the recommended first valve adjustment interval is probably still several thousand miles away. Yeah. At one time, though, it went in for service like 20 years ago yeah. for whatever it was. So who knows who did what at that time. So it's just yeah. one of those things of like, right. uh, you know, for the 20 minutes it'll take to do it. If it takes that long, you know, it's did, like might as well. How did you check the timing? Did you use a light, yep. uh, timing light yes. on it? Yep. And okay. I checked one on both cylinders. So there's marks for both cylinders. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just, I, I checked it on both and it's, um, it's, Close enough. I mean, it's close enough, right? I mean, it's yeah. if it wasn't exactly on, it was within like a degree. So it's like again, you know, not. Yeah. Okay. So it starts and idles fine, but as soon as you give it gas, it wants Once to it, die. Yeah, I mean, when it's when it's cold and on full choke, it's a little bit better. Yeah. Um, because and then because once you can get it up in the in the RPMs, it'll rev and it seems to rev okay. Um, yeah. but certainly once it's warm. And you take it off the the choke, um, yeah, that's really when it starts seeing problems. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it seems like maybe the either the air fuel or the pilot jet is either clogged or not functioning properly. That's the only thing I can think of. I don't know if maybe some of that gunk or some of the stuff from the fuel tank got stuck in one or both of the pilot jets that could be i'll tell you that was the final straw on the original tank that i had on my little honda that i had done a caswell coating on it and after one tank of gas and i was this was even i put ethanol free premium in it one trip to work and back and when i looked inside i was like man why is this hung up and you know, I had all kinds of gunk in there and I looked and it had just peeled away from the sides. Mm. I was like, uh, and I looked in the inside and it was just, not only did I now have the, the plastic liner material, but all the rust that was behind it, I had all those flakes swirling around. I was like, I'm done with this. I'm just yeah. going to get a new tank. So yeah. Yeah. I might have to start looking for one of those just, just because so. What you might uh, want to do is just find, you know, like a f- tap a fuel bottle or something that you can just, you know, put a petcock in a aluminum fuel bottle to see if you can get it to run cleanly on gas that you know is is doesn't yeah, have any crud in it. Yeah, yeah, and that was the other thing too is, um, uh, well, it was funny because we were messing around with it and then I couldn't get it to start. I'm like, what the hell? And I'm like, oh, I'm out of gas. Yeah, <laughs> that was part of it. But- um. Uh, but, but yeah, I guess I, I could do that too. Cause I know the gas you, is good. It's, it's not only like a month old. It's been sitting in a, in a jerry can in a, you know, or not a jerry can, but a plastic fuel can. So it's, it should be fine. 
What I use for little auxiliary fuel bottles is a little motorcycle coolant overflow bottle mm-hmm. that has like a push on rubber lid, but it's, you know, liquid tight. Oh, yeah. And then um, I just keep uh, a loop of five sixteenths uh, fuel because there's a there's a lower port and an upper port that's just like a, you know, a five sixteenths barb. And I keep like a two foot length of uh, five sixteenths fuel line on it. And then um, I just like when I'm going to connect it to carburetors, I'll just pull it off the top one and then put a little cap on that port that I just opened up. And then, you know, you can hook it onto your carburetors uh, barb. So, yeah, just a little coolant overflow bottle because they're cheap and you can get them anywhere and they're clear. So, you know how much yeah, fuel's in smart. it. I like that so. idea. I am writing that down now. I think I'll be ordering a new gas tanker from from eBay here. There's a few of them on here for like 50 bucks. I'm like, <laughs> make sure it's better inside than the one you have. Fair point. Yes. Most of the ones that you get of this age, they say looks good inside, but that's kind of like all original and all the other things people say that, you know, looks good to you is not serviceable. Yep. Uh, a suggestion. If you get a replacement tank and you still can't get it to work, you must, you're in Detroit. You must have somebody locally you can just hand it off to and say, make it run. <laughs> Formerly, yes. And they're actually not that far from me. It used to be a real, uh, a good shop that worked on like old motorcycles, but uh, they're all going away. It's all cars. There's very little, it's, hmm. there's motorcycles around here, but it's, yeah, it's a little hit and miss. So, but I, yeah, that is on the list. That is on the list. Um, so since we've recorded our last show, I've been up to Canada twice to announce two rounds of the Canadian National Superbike Series, which has been a ton of fun. In fact, as we record this, I just came back last night. And um, so if my voice sounds a little gravelly, it's because I've been on a mic for three days in a row for about eight hours a day. Um, so anyways, the racing is good. And if you want to watch some of the racing uh the the racing from Shannonville was outstanding. Uh, the racing from Grand Bend here this past weekend was mostly pretty good. Uh, it's uh, if you look for the Canadian Superbike on uh, YouTube, you can watch the races. Whatever you won't hear me. You almost did though. And this is part of the story. So for one of the races, the what they call sport bike, which is like their 600 cc class, and it's actually horsepower limited, either 125 or 130 horsepower um, at the rear wheel. Um, they recorded myself and another person who I usually announce with up there as the broadcast from the, or, or as we announced from the tower, and they were going to overlay that onto the video. Problem was, is the person I was recording with, um, somehow turned off his wireless mic. So it recorded me, but not him. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, that didn't work out. So, um, and then we, we couldn't do that at Grand Bend because, my announce, or, or I should say my, but our announce position is is on top of a shipping container. <laughs> so we're standing on top of a shipping container, looking over the track, announcing. So that's it's a little janky, but it works, and you actually can see ninety five percent of the track, so it works out okay. Um, but and then um, the other thing I was gonna say is that the they have a class that's sort of like the R threes and the four hundred ninjas. And it's the the racing in that class is absolutely awesome. Um, so I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I got to look at getting me one of these to go racing. I'm like, and then the series, the local series, that, well, it's in Canada that I would go to club race at. They don't have a series for that, which sucks. So I'm like, all right. Then I'm looking at what they have for for classes and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, well, SV650, which was always a fallback, that would work there. So blah, 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 I'm looking, and then all of a sudden someone on the board, on the Facebook board for that club, has got an SV650 fully prepped with spares for 2,500 Canadian. <laughs> that's yeah. about, that's just, un, that's just over 2,000 US. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. no! <laughs> oh! So anyways, I haven't bought it yet, but then I won't, but it's just like, ah, oh, so close. So close. Yeah. It's, Tempting though it was it was hugely tempting. Hmm. Uh, speaking of tempting, I was looking on Two Stroke World, the forum, and somebody had posted an article about the bike he built for their local go kart track races. They're like 
30 laps in one direction, then they change and go 30 laps in the other direction. And Weird. it's on a half mile, like 10 or 11 turn go-kart track. Mm-hmm. So it's like really narrow and hard to pass. And there, he said, you get to breathe, take a couple deep breaths on the, on the straight. Other than that, you're just like frenetically turning the whole way around. You don't get any rest. It sounded really cool. So they had like modern 250s and under. Vintage was 500 and under, but they had to be more than 25 years old. And then they had lightweight, which was like anything under 185 cc's. Mm. And the winner last year was an RM250 with 17-inch tires and slicks on it. Yeah. It was like, it just looked so much fun. So, Yeah, I bet that would be. I'm very fortunate that they don't have anything like that anywhere close to me. So... (laughs) (laughs) I don't have to have that discussion with my wife. Um, should we go to questions? Yes. Sure. Okay. Earlier today, I posted on our Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com slash neutral. I said, give us some questions. And amazingly, some people actually did. Uh, so we have three questions from listeners that we want to talk about. First from Scott. Schnettler. Your picks for a wildcard bike as the second or third bike in your collection that you'd like to own for the novelty, but don't think you would need to keep long term. For example, I'd like to have an MV Augusta once in my life, but it would probably spend most of its time waiting for parts to arrive. I'd also like to try a 70s street two stroker, but probably would probably trade for something more modern once I'd had that experience. So it, it sounds to me like this is not, uh, you know, the dream bike you would always want on your bucket list, but just something like, yeah, if I had a chance to try that, I'd like to, but not necessarily something practical for day-to-day transportation. Mm-hmm. I have a couple ideas, but what do you, what would you guys, what comes to your minds? Um, what comes to my mind first is an RC51 Honda, because um, it's kind of on my bucket list to have one. And they're not terribly expensive, but they're outperformed by so many things nowadays that it's something that I could see buying and owning for a while just to like cross it off the bucket list. And I'm sure they're amazing to ride. Um, but I just don't think that I would keep it forever. Um, and then kind of on that same note, uh, a KTM RC8. Because, mm-hmm. um, again... Just like, you know, a V-twin bike from the early to mid-2000s is just kind of appealing to me with, you know, without all the rider aids and stuff, kind of before that was all getting um, really common in the big bikes. But um, so either the RC8 or the RC51, I think that those would be cool to have, probably not to have forever. Um And then my other thought, and this is in a completely different universe, is the Royal Enfield Continental GT that is just coming out or maybe just came out last year. The twin? Yeah. 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 Um, I I actually really want one. (laughs) Like, I haven't brought this up on our episode yet, but, like, I desperately want the new Continental GT. I will tell you, I have been following a thread on the the new Enfield Twins um, mm-hmm. ADV rider, and everybody to a person who's ridden one absolutely said they've fallen in love with one and they want one. Yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't heard anything negative. They don't make a lot of power for their size. No, no. But one guy said but- it it is so much more like a vintage Triumph Bonneville than his new Triumph Bonneville is. He's like, I almost, you know, he's like, I like my bike, but it's almost too modern. I really would almost rather have that because it felt more like his old Meriden Triumph. Yeah, you guys remember my Yamaha TX750. Mm -hmm. How could you not? So, like, but when I saw the the Royal Enfield, I'm like, this is almost the same bike, but fuel-injected and modern, and I'm sure it works a million times better. Uh. You know, and it's got ABS, uh, the the Royal Enfields. I feel like, um, especially for the price, 
And if you're not trying to go really fast, the amount of style that they have, the aesthetics, um, you know, combined with the price is I'm just really liking those bikes. And I can't wait to ride one slash buy one. (laughs) because <laughs> i'm telling you i'm going to <laughs> what's the I, I i know i've seen this stuff pop up about it but what's the pricing on one of those i think for the continental gt with the rear cowl c it's like 6200 yeah or 6300 i think it's like 63.99 something like that yeah that's not bad yeah, yeah. i, I so actually I think, and that's a continental gt i think that there's the um what's the other one it, it's not the interceptor it's the int 650 because honda yeah to fit when they, even though it was traditionally a Enfield name, uh-huh. uh, Honda was like, no, 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 we yeah. have trademark on Interceptor. So it suddenly went from Interceptor 650 to INT 650. Yeah. And that one's a little bit less, I think. Uh, yeah. And I tell con- you, my local, uh, Triumph dealer started carrying them and I happened to drive by. And they had a couple of them out front. The they didn't have the Continental yet, but they had a couple of the uh, INT interceptors. Yeah. And Do you know, I I I saw there's one that's like just a, a, a kind of a tangerine. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it's actually called Orange Crush. And I didn't like them until I saw it in person. I was like, oh, I could do this in a minute. I sat. Yeah, on what's it. a build quality like? Like from your perspective surprisingly good yeah um it, and it, were they trying to add on like a, a markup to it just because they're my local dealer was i i think a little bit i think they had the uh int 650 for 63 out yeah. the door so okay. it, you know out the it, door. not bad you know yeah yeah i would i would probably even be tempted to sell this Kenny Roberts RZ 350 in favor of buying a Continental GT just because I have a zillion two-stroke street bikes and I don't really need them all. But yeah, just the idea of like, you know, commuting something like the Continental GT. I'm really into that idea. So I'm trying to think of a way I can get my hands on one without my wife going. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, there's really nothing else quite like that you know yeah well especially for the price because the triumph what are twin you doing <laughs> is the the triumph twin is quite a bit more money like and 10, you know 10, it's 10, probably better performing but i from where i'm standing i would way sooner buy the royal enfield than i would a, a triumph twin but yeah. Pete, what's your uh what's your wild card bike? Well, the first one that popped into my head was the uh, uh I would really like someday to have an Aramaki. The little horizontal single Aramaki like a 250 or, you know, a 350 Harley Sprint is is something it's it's not on my Oh, gotta have bucket list. Always wanted. It's not like a Marini or Boltaco or something like that, but it's like, there always been really cool little bikes that I've always thought, Oh, I'd, I'd like to have one of those. Yeah. Um, the other thing I thought about is I would love someday to have one of the just something with ridiculously large displacement, like, uh, like the, the triumph. triumph. Yeah. Like, the, yeah. Or, uh, Valkyrie or what's the, Big Honda had a, a oh the CTX eighteen hundred V yeah. twin from Honda. Um, Yamaha has another one. Uh, the, so one oh, of those stars, the Style Master Road Striker Streamliner Glide. I don't know what it's called, but they've got like it started out as a seventeen hundred and I think became an eighteen hundred big V twin. It's got like pushrod tubes as big around as my wrist. It's like yeah. That's something that would be not a novelty that I'd like to have, but I know I wouldn't want to ride it all the time. Yeah. I'd like take one fairly long trip on it, say that was cool and want to get rid of it. Um, I can't. Oh, I'll tell you something that it, it's old enough that it's so impractical 
that I wouldn't need to hold on to it, but I would love to have a Panther single. The old Sloper 650 British singles, like an M120, which was the 650 version. They made them through early 60s, mid 60s, something like that. But it was basically the same engine from like the 40s onward because they just never really updated them. They said you could count the pulses as you wrote it. It fired once every street post was the joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that reminds me, just another motorcycle that I think I would want in the short term, but there's probably no resale value for it is like an electric motorcycle, like a live wire, something like that. Um, just to experience the electric motorcycle thing and ride it around for a little bit. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. That. That's actually on my list here as I was writing it down to remember is something like one of the zeros or something like that is. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I'd like it or not. I don't like it might just be a thing like that. Yeah, but yeah, I would like to try it. Sure. Yeah, I did see in this latest issue of Motorcyclist magazine. They had a prototype Ural electric motorcycle with a sidecar because um, I guess that there's a office in Seattle that Ural runs, and I, I think that might be where they do some prototyping. So they had a magazine article in Seattle, and they're riding around the Ural with sidecar, which actually the sidecar motorcycles, electric powered, makes a lot of sense because you can have a massive battery. That's true. Uh, yeah. You know, so you can actually like the range, you could have a pretty significant range. And the um, torque would be. I mean, the torque off idle when you've got that much weight would really be perfect. Yeah. So I was thinking about that when I was reading that article that the, you know, the Ural is actually probably one of the perfect bikes to electric power. So, yeah. Yeah. All right, Eric, what are yours? So, well, like I said, one of the electric bikes would be one. The other two that I have marked on here would be some kind of, Preferably V-twin version, but I'll take a single as well. But some kind of bevel drive Ducati. Yeah. Um, just because they're kind of iconic and cool and, you know, of a period or whatever. But it's one of those things like, yeah, I'm doing the vintage thing right now and it's not really <laughs> doing much for me. Right. Um, you know, because of what it is, maybe it's different versus a UJM, you know. Um, so that would be one. The other one that I had written down, and again, this is more for the, I really want to see, I, I want to see both sides of the Kool-Aid conversation of the, the believers and the haters. And that would be like whatever the last version of Eric Buell's 1190, but the standard version, not the sport bike version. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would be the other one. And, and you know, you could probably get in and out of it in a year or two and sell it for what you bought it for. Right. Cause there's, there's not many, but there's enough demand or the people who like them, like them and they'll just buy it. Right. So, you know, just because so many people drink Eric's Kool-Aid and I'm like, OK, and I'm so many people. <laughs> yeah. And then some, you know, just for the experience, I would I would like to do that. Yeah. Those, yeah. Would, be, those would be my two. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like it. OK. Our next question from Blake Hopper. Can you still get a good beginner bike for a thousand dollars? And then he says, and I'm I'm not sure exactly what he's asking. He says, Look at ADV bikes suck as a KLR 650, dreaming of GS Beamer. Is that a good bike for a beginner starting with zero experience? I think he's asking if a KLR 650 is a good bike for a beginner, but he thinks it sucks because it's a pretend I'm GS. Not, I'm, I'm not sure. I, exactly. I, no, I, th- I, th- I think it's just he's like, if you're dreaming of having a GS down the road, is a KLR like a good starting starting place? That was my interpretation of that, of which I will say, yes, because you literally cannot kill a KLR. Well, can you kill a KLR 650? Yes, but you really, really, really have to try. It dies that. in slow motion. It's a really long, yeah. drawn-out death. It's kind of what people say about 80s Chevys. It will run bad longer than most other vehicles will run. Yes. Right. Yep. And a KLR, you can fix cheap and bring it back from the grave, you know, because there's parts availability for them because they were unchanged for like 300 years. Right, right. So now I would have, um, I would say a first gen one, not one with the full frame mount fairing on it, but the one with the little headlight fairing. Yeah. Would it be like pre 2004 or something like that? But I think if you're buying for a thousand dollars, 
you're pretty much buying a first gen one. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, well, and to broaden that and probably to answer his original question, yes, you can get an entry level bike for a thousand bucks. You can probably all day long buy something pretty cheap. In fact, I was, uh, watching, I don't know if you guys have the Motor Trend on demand app for Ari Henning and Zach Quartz do the throttle out show now. Mm-mm. Um, and they did an episode where they sight unseen off of Portland Craigslist bought one of them bought a TW 200 and the other one bought a KLR and they rode them from downtown Portland up into Washington state and, um, into the mountains. But, um, they didn't spend that much money. I mean, probably more than a thousand bucks, but they also bought motorcycles that are kind of desirable. And like the KLR was a little bit newer. But yes, I haven't seen just bought them and then rode them on, you know, a multi-day trip. But the point being is, I'm sure at any moment you could go on Craigslist and find a pretty decent bike for a thousand bucks. I would argue that only depends on where you live, right? Because around here, around here, I just as a idea for content for the YouTube channel, I was like, all right, you know, because everyone's like, I bought the cheapest fill in the blank, you know, and see what happened kind of thing. And not that I was doing that, but like. All right, what could you buy? And then just like as a, you know, cheap project bike or whatever, do it. And I was looking for something between like 500 and a thousand bucks that I would be, that I would want to buy. And it was just like, it was kind of slim pickings of what wasn't just like a complete, I want to say a basket case, but like that's going to be a lot of work. Not something like, like you could go buy and ride and kind of fix up a little bit. Yeah. So I think it really depends on on where you live. Like if you live yeah. in out south, down south, or out west, or something like that, then probably. Yeah. Um, but around here, it was a little tougher. Yeah, my first street bike that I bought um, was a eighty nineteen eighty uh, Honda CM four hundred, and it looked pretty rough. But uh, I didn't do a single thing to it, and I rode the wheels off of it. I bought it for three hundred bucks. Which I'm sure nowadays would probably be more like six or seven hundred, and it's also kind of luck. You take a gamble when you buy something like that because it mm-hmm. can either run forever and not ever need anything, or it could, you know, not start the second day you owned it. Um, and luckily, mine worked well. But uh, still, to this day, probably the funnest I've ever had on a motorcycle, uh, old Honda CM400. Yeah, and and CM400, I think, would be would be good they're air-cooled because a lot of the the problems i've seen with old cheap motorcycles if they're liquid cooled is they're leaking coolant somewhere yeah or they've got a shot water pump or i mean especially if it hasn't been it's either gonna have a billion miles on it Mm -hmm. or it sat for a period of time and the coolant corroded something yeah. inside the engine so those especially if you get the later 450s yeah they had a really big oil cooler built into the sump mm-hmm. and those actually are talk about indestructible motors they're not terribly exciting but they're probably no yeah. less exciting than a klr 650 engine true and the problem with the klr is it depends on your stature if mm. you're not tall enough to straddle it flat-footed when you first start out, that can be really intimidating. For somebody with zero experience, having a bike that you're on tippy-toes on, not so much when you're out riding, not even at lights, but like pulling in and out of gas stations and getting on and off the bike and stuff can be intimidating. The the one that I'd spent some time on and was we took camping uh, at Laguna Seca, by the time I put all the crap on the, on the back of the bike, you know, and strapped it down, trying to throw a leg over the bike was a little bit difficult be, just because of how high it was. And I'm 5'10 with a 32, 33-inch inseam. So, so yeah, it can be a little um, – once you're on, you're fine. I could flat foot whatever. I don't know, flat foot, but at least good on my toes kind of thing, and it was fine. And the other thing, too, is it has a top speed of about 80, and once you get above 80 – uh, you get a nice little front end wobble, but um, these are the things you need to think about. Uh, all in all, it's a decent bike, and I think it's yeah, it'd be all right. Uh, I just looked at my local Craigslist, and somebody has a 2007 Honda Shadow 750 for a thousand dollars with yeah. with under ten thousand miles on it. So you know, 
they're out there. Now, this one is probably, I think, probably below market if it's in good shape and it hasn't been wrecked and repaired. You know, it, that's an engine that you really can't hurt too much. Uh, if you're looking for literally like a learner bike, one of my local training centers is selling off all of their uh, MSF bikes for $900 a piece. They're little bikes. They're going to be 125s, 250s. Yeah. But they get used regularly. They're going to get maintained properly. And most of their time, they're going to be tootling around a parking lot. Right. I'm sorry. I, I did a search for 600 to to $1,000 by me. And, well, here's a FJ1200 for 800 bucks, but it's not running correctly. Um, That's so what you don't about- want as, as a beginning yeah. rider. You don't yeah, want yeah. something that is not going to work properly because that's just going to really complicate while you're out trying to learn to ride to have something that you need to troubleshoot and diagnose when you don't know bikes. Yep. There was a, uh, there's a 650, or uh, excuse me, a 450 Nighthawk, but same thing, not running. Uh, Suzuki GS850. Uh, good bike for sale needs some minor things, but it runs fine for yeah, seven hundred bucks, and it's got like a wind jammer fairing on it and stuff like that. So, but <laughs> which that's, makes that's which makes much. riding so much more easy. Let's yeah. put forty pounds over my front wheel. It's 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 slim. Like I said, it's slim pickings around here. It's a lot of either old dirt bikes or a lot of. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you one one thing that they run forever, and I am surprised how cheap they are are old Honda Helix 250 scooters. Yeah. And you can pick them up. I mean, people buy them and they end up in the garage and they end up with, you know, four or five, 6,000 miles on them and they're from the 1980s. I know they're liquid cooled. So again, you need to look them over real carefully, but uh, they'll do 70, 75 miles per hour pretty easily, partially because they're really nicely streamlined. Yeah. And uh, if you're not trying to learn how to use a, clutch if you truly have no experience man it's twist and go and you know if you can break and twist the throttle you know how to ride one yeah mm-hmm. it's funny you mentioned that there's a 2005 honda reflex 250 uh in my neck of the woods for 650 bucks and it runs and rides apparently it's got abs too i mean it's red and it's really faded but it runs and rides well they say yeah fifteen thousand miles on it somebody actually wrote it about a uh let's see. <laughs> I'm like, oh there's something wrong with this one. A two thousand two CBR six hundred F four I for a thousand bucks. Like, okay, what's wrong with it? The bike has a slightly stripped cylinder head causing the spark plug to pop out every couple thousand miles. <laughs> like a yeah. slightly stripped. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, slightly stripped, they say. How yeah, much are CBR two fifties? Like the, the first model CBR two fifty R. Uh, I think they're probably they're, just over a thousand bucks. I think they're all over the board because those who have them have unrealistic expectations of what they think they're going to get out of them. Yeah. And I think dealers rip people off on beginner bikes because. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I don't know why anybody buys a new one of those when you can, you know, for 40% less buy one off of Craigslist that has 600 miles on it because that's as many miles as many of them ever achieve. Yeah. Okay. I just threw one in the side chat real quick, just just mostly because of the photo. A CX500 with a big king and queen touring seat on it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm, I dig it. I'm wrong. I'm looking at Auto Trader and I'm seeing CBRs anywhere from 18 to 24. So there's a uh, a Ninja 250R for like 1100 bucks. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think that probably the Ninjas are probably cheaper. Um, yeah. Okay, our last question. Our good friend and uh, former guest, Jim, a.k.a. Rusty Spokes, who said, what to do with old helmets? Art project, trash, garage decoration. I've got eight taking up space in the basement. Yeah. And that's um, a really good question because I just <laughs> got around to installing the communicator in the new Neotech I bought a year ago. <laughs> So I finally, a year after I bought it, I've made the transition to the Neotech, which absolutely is a fantastic helmet. The ventilation is so much better than my old Nolan. I believe that. I'm going to say, so we now have uh, two old Nolans. My concern with helmets is they say you're supposed to replace them within a certain age, you know, sometimes seven to ten years. 
just because the resins apparently can break down. And and that could just be invented to sell more helmets. No, I don't know. No, it's the EPS actually yeah, does break well, down. No, no, I, yeah. Styrofoam crushes and so easier. I've always been hesitant to give helmets away or donate helmets that are older or even not older, but just because if something were to happen and, and the helmet came from me, I just... I've always been kind of weird about, you know, doing something other than throwing them away or keeping them on a shelf. Yeah, there are there is a third option, um, but it will vary. So and I was told this by someone and I need I, I should probably do this since I especially since I've moved towns in the last few years. Um, check with your local fire department. They may or may not be able to use them for training as far as oh yeah for for training and like for accidents and stuff like that and right. getting you know helmets off of people. Yeah. So I would I would uh, ask your local fire department slash EMTs if they can use them. Yeah, so that's a good point. I it's an option. I've never thought about that. I, I just looked on my local Craigslist, and there are 82 helmets for sale in the motorcycle parts and accessories category. Why the hell would anybody buy a helmet from a stranger when you have no idea what the history of this helmet is? Uh, yeah. You know... I could see if maybe they truly had the box and it still had the stickers on the shield and you could, you, you really believably thought it was unused. But even then, I mean, you drop a, especially a polycarbonate helmet. Yeah. It can deflect enough to really crush the, the styrofoam liner and create a pocket in there that you can't see because it's glued in. I mean, there are some people asking some serious money for used helmets. And I, I find it bizarre. Somebody's got a used showy for three hundred and seventy-five dollars. I'm like, you can buy a new one <laughs> on closeout for that much money. Yeah. The yep. idea of buying somebody else's used helmet is just, to me, seems like a really stupid risk to take. Yeah, a used helmet is like used underwear. Like once, <laughs> I, <laughs> once I, a helmet goes on somebody's head, like. It's their head that belongs in that helmet or nobody. I, it's just kind of disgusting to me. I, I think I did buy, I have bought a used helmet, but I knew the full history of that helmet. And it was kind of a semi rare, uh, or very hard to get Japanese one. I can't even remember which one it is now. I, it's sitting down in the basement, but yeah, it was, it was a great helmet, but I knew who owned it. I knew exactly what they did in it, and it was fine. But I, for the most part, Garrett, I agree with you. <laughs> now, I, I have to say I did sell one helmet on eBay that was used, but I had uh, one of the very first Simpson Bandits that uh, I ended up selling for $425. Wow. Yeah. Now, it was very lightly used, and it had uh, the tinted shield, the mirrored shield, the, the clear shield for it, replacement pivot. So I had all the accessories for it, and it was truly very lightly used. And I said in the ad, this is a 10-year-old helmet. It's lightly used, but it's still 10 years old. This is not something you want to be using. Some guy from Japan wanted it for his like collection of helmets. Yeah. and paid an unreal amount of money. Some guys got in a bidding war and he ended up buying it for like $50 more than my, my buy it now price had been, but they started bidding huh. on it and the buy it now went away and they ended up going over it. So yeah. Wow. That, that yeah. Like, and on that note, I would buy a used vintage helmet, something that like matched the Kenny Roberts motorcycle that I have, just something that kind of fit with that period. Just so like if I rode into a show, you know, I might right, have like a vintage right. helmet on, but like didn't wear it there, you know, kind of thing. But yeah. Now, so I suppose I do that. I don't know what art projects you could do with them, but you could like maybe silicone up the shield and make an aquarium out of it. You know, have a little, <laughs> have a little light and some fish swimming around inside your helmet. You know, that's true. Um, yeah. Some lawn art. You could make a planter out of it. You could, there you, go. you could put some plant in it. Have, have all your helmets, you know, screw them to your deck upside down. Take the liner out, screw them upside down, seal up the shield and put some plants in it. So you've got all your helmets there lined up along your edge <laughs> of your deck. Yeah. Well, anything coming up in the next month? I know smack dab will happen. I'll be at the start. I will not be at the end. I've been trying to talk my wife into doing a one day, a smack dab length trip. 
of about 700 miles that's going to end up back at our house because I want to go yeah. up and see where the bridge washed away in the middle of uh, the ride. About uh, just south of the Nebraska-South Dakota border this spring, a dam broke and washed away the road, and there's just this giant gap where the road ends. And so we've planned a detour around that so people won't be going on that part of the highway. I'd kind of like to go up and see it. And then next year during Smack Dab, they will have a temporary one-way wooden bridge while they're building the replacement mm-hmm. permanent bridge. So I might do that, but Sarah's like, eh, I might just want to turn around and come home yeah. after, we, after we get everybody off. I think that's all I've got going on. Motorcycle-wise, nothing planned. My next announcing motorcycle announcing is until uh, August at this point, although there are some people trying to get me out to uh, Nova Scotia to announce that the Canadian race out there, but that's not going to happen. So um, other than that, that's it's going to be quiet for me motorcycle-wise for a little bit. And, Garrett, by next month, you'll have all of yours done. We'll be hearing about your, your RD350, your... Yeah. Kenny Roberts, your GT, all of those will be finished, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> some dream of mine, I'm sure. <laughs> and you'll have Maybe your, a RZ, we'll see. And you'll be working as an anesthetist by then, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. You can check us out on Facebook. You can check us out on Hooniverse. You can download our podcasts from a smart speaker or from Shout Engine or iTunes. Please leave us a review. It does make a difference. Thanks for listening. Thanks to you guys for doing this every month, and we'll see you next month. So long.